We are going to spend our morning in chapter 3, starting in verse 11 to 15. I think I about lost my voice. So I think since I'm young, there's this stereotype that I just like contemporary Christian music, but I actually prefer hymns. I have like a goodnight playlist for my kids, and most of it is hymns, so I just about lost my voice. So bear with me. The Apostle Paul writes, Here, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you. We thank you for the grace we have received to live another year and to be a part of your eternal family. We thank you for that. Pray as we open up your word that you would illuminate your truth to us. Pray that you would use me, use my sinfulness, or use me in spite of my sinfulness so that your word may be taught. Father, I pray if any word that I speak is untrue, you would mute it from the ears of your children. Specifically, I pray right now, if there's any spirit, evil spirit that would cause division amongst your body, I cast, I cast it out in the name of Jesus Christ. And I pray that your name would be magnified. And that every soul would be transformed. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we meet here on the last day of 2017 and enter a new year, it can't be denied that the world around us seems to be growing further and further apart. The cultural divisions that divide our society seem to have seeped into every crevice of our communities. From the NFL to Washington, D.C., division is rampant. And I'm young, so it's very well possible that this division has always been there, and I've just now noticed. But the reality is, the culture wars have torn our society in opposite directions, I think, with little sign of solidarity in sight. But the call from the word of the eternal, omniscient, omnipotent God and the charge from Paul to the church in Colossae and the charge to us is that this division 
can have no place among the people of God. That God's church must be marked by unity above all else. And I want us to see this morning how Paul envisions how a diverse body with people from all different backgrounds, from all different ethnicities, from all different social statuses, how that body can be unified. So the first thing I want us to see is that the church must be radically inclusive because God has chosen people from across all cultures and all social backgrounds to be his children. Let's say that again. The church must be radically inclusive because God has chosen people from across all cultures and social backgrounds to be his, his children. So Paul begins... If you look in your Bibles, Paul begins in verse 11 by saying the word here. And we first must ask ourselves, what does Paul mean by this word here? And I think we get an idea when we look at the context of these verses looked in light of the whole book or the whole letter. So starting in chapter 3, Paul talks about putting to death the deeds of the flesh, of your old life before you knew Christ. And Paul says, we should put on a new self, right? And Paul goes through all these sins like sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. Paul says, this is what used to rule your life and what the wrath of God is coming for. But having been made a new creation, having been made a new creation, Paul says we, as Christ followers, must rid ourselves of all these sinful desires, of all these sinful actions. So now, you probably have seen similar passages to this one. I think Brother Chris sent me a text message of one in 1 Corinthians this morning, um, of putting on the new self, and putting on the righteousness of Christ. But what is striking is that in verse 11... When Paul uses the word here, he's talking about the new creation. And what's interesting is that the new self, the new creation, we all become, this new creation we all become when we trust in Christ, it not only changes the sinful deeds within us, but this new self also changes how we relate to each other. You see, I think... We as 21st century American Christians, I think we understand when we become a Christian, we're taught this, we become a new creation. But what Paul is stating is that this renewal of spirit is not simply an individual change of character, although it is that, but it's also a corporate recreation of humanity. And Paul demonstrates this by giving eight different distinctions of people that is meant to show the inclusiveness of this new creation. Paul says there is now no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. Now what was shocking about this to the ancient church at Colossae is the same thing that is shocking to us now. That now in this new creation, in the church of Jesus Christ, there is no distinction based on ethnicity, 
based on culture, based on social status. And Paul says, even the barbarians can be part of this new creation. He says the Scythians. The Scythians were like the most vile people to the ancient Greeks, the, the, the savages. The ancient Greeks used to mock non-Greek, other non-Greek languages as it sounded like just noise to them. It said bar, 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 and it became the word barbarian. It was a very derogatory term that implied the other cultures surrounding the Greek culture were inferior. I think today a parallel could be a term like ghetto or white trash, trailer trash. Um, Any term we have in our culture that is meant to show how uh, a minority culture or a minority social class is inferior. And what Paul is saying is that here, in the new creation, in the church of Jesus Christ, these distinctions have no place. There is now no distinction based on social class. There is no distinction based on income. There is no distinction based on your power in the community, and there is no distinction based on race. But everybody is equal in Christ and equal in his church. Now, I think this verse has been slightly misinterpreted, and you can argue with me after if you disagree, but I think many, well, many, specifically white Christians, that's including myself, when we read this verse, we see that, See Paul say that there's now no distinction between race or ethnicity or social class and that the church must be inclusive of every sort of type of person. We assume that means, of course, you can have fellowship with us. All people can have fellowship with us. All people can worship with us at our church. But you, you have to leave the things we don't like about your culture at the door. You have to now become part of this church culture whatever church that is. We might not think or say this explicitly, but the way that our churches have been structured in this country, they're typically run by the majority culture of that church. So the music we play, the food we eat, the clothing we wear, the customs and traditions we have are typically, at least in our case at First Baptist Elgin, white-centric. And Hear me, there is nothing, there is nothing inherently wrong with that. But I would push and encourage you that Paul never once says that in the new creation, in the church, when all these different cultures and social classes become one family in a local church, he never says that we have to kill those identities or cultures for the sake of the majority culture. He doesn't call the ancient barbarians become more Greek. He calls them to become more like Christ. So Paul is saying, now these earthly identities that we all have are no longer what is most important. For the Christian, what is most important now is solidarity in Christ. And this must rule and govern how this church is run. And I'm going to say something that might not be PC in our culture, but it's true. We are different. Our races are different. Our cultures are different. People in each race are different. Not all races are the same. 
and we cannot be afraid of our differences. Black people have a different culture than white people. Hispanics have a different culture than Asians. We're different colors. We enjoy different foods. We have different customs. All of us have different worldviews. All of us have different political views. All of us have different historical backgrounds that shape the very fabric of who we are. And this is what I want us to see. That is okay. In fact, that is God's design for the church. I know some of my brothers in this church, they spend their weekends, they wake up extremely early to go shoot animals for food. And that seems crazy to me, because I've never done that. That's not part of my culture. Looking at you, Alan. <laughs> I do. I got an I H-E-B if I want some meat, right? I have some black friends who dress and they speak differently than me. They may wear their pants lower along the waist. They may speak a different form of English. And that is okay. That is their culture, their God-given culture. I married a Mexican woman, a strong Mexican woman, Andrea right here in the first row. And when when I first started eating with her family, they don't eat. They don't start their meal till like 10 p.m. And my dear mother here, my whole life has gone to sleep at 8 o'clock. So you already know I'm having trouble adjusting to the different culture. My point is we all have these differences that have the potential to divide us. And unfortunately, I think these differences are dividing our culture. Just turn on the news. And I'd like to say that these divisions haven't infiltrated the church, but I fear it has. When we can't fellowship with somebody, when we can't love somebody because of the way they voted, there's a huge problem with our understanding of what makes up the body of Christ. The call for us is not to assimilate to some church culture, but to be a people marked by love for one another and an embrace of our differences. Our love for one another should make no sense to this world. Blacks and whites, Hispanics and Asians, liberals and conservatives living life side by side together, unified under one thing and one thing alone, and that is the name of Jesus Christ. But when God calls the church to be this radically inclusive, it isn't easy. This will always produce conflict. And in verse 12, Paul gives us instructions on how we are to live together as one diverse body under God. But before we get there, I'm going to nerd out because I'm in seminary and I'm allowed to do that for a couple minutes. So I have to address this question that we should all have when we read this text. The church can't include everybody, right? It's a question. The church can't, right? This is 100% true. Paul is primarily writing this letter to the Colossians to address the false teaching facing that church. So ironically, the point of the letter is who the church should avoid fellowship with. So quickly, there are essential beliefs that one must have to be a Christian and therefore be a part of a body, a local body like this church. 
That is a belief that Jesus is the Son of God who came to earth fully as a man to pay the price on the cross of sin that all of humanity deserves so that anybody that believes in him can and will have eternal life. And that after believing in Christ, with your whole life you are born again, completely transformed to hate sin and to love righteousness. You have to believe this to be a Christian. It is the gospel. And let me, clear, let me be clear. We can't. We can't have fellowship in the church body with people who deny this truth. In this body. Outside of this body, of course, we can evangelize. But inside this church body is for Christians. It is essential. Now, there's a second tier of beliefs that separate our individual church fellowships, but they don't negate our, like, our unity with brothers and sisters of Jesus' universal church. And this is views on baptism or communion or how the church should be run and women leadership and churches. And that's why we have all these denominations. That's why we have what 70-something churches in this town. And then there is everything else. I'd call it the third tier. And this is what I think should never cause division amongst this body of Christ. And that can include ambiguous theological conclusions or hard-to-understand texts in the Bible, like God's sovereignty and free will. It's where we get Calvinism and Arminianism. When and how the end times are going to happen. Or even if Genesis means six literal days or six longer periods of time. And more specifically, what I think this third tier relates to is the differences in everything else in the world that we all have. Politics. The role of patriotism, right? Gun control. The use of military action. The death penalty. The new tax bill standing or kneeling for the national anthem. None of these issues should cause division in the church. We have to learn how to disagree well on these non-essential issues. I'll say that again, the non-essential issues, we have to learn how to disagree well. And Paul gives us a blueprint of how to do that. Amen? It's our second point. As God's chosen people, his church, we must treat our brothers and sisters, whom we disagree, whom we have differences with, with compassion, with kindness, with humility, with gentleness, with patience, and above all, with love. Paul says in verse 12, Therefore, as God's chosen people... So let's just stop here for a second. This church that you are a part of is not some club that you joined to gain friends and live a moral life. You see, if you're sitting here and you're a Christian, you are chosen. That's what Paul just said. Chosen to be God's child, and specifically at this time, you're chosen to be a member at First Baptist Church Elgin. And this brings on a great responsibility. To be the salt and light of the world, 
It's the call of Jesus on the Christian's life, and it is not optional. God chose you, Christian, to be holy, which means to be set apart amongst all other humans, just like the Israelites. And Deuteronomy 7, 6, Moses says, For you are a people holy to the Lord. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, to be his treasured possession. So we are now the new creation, the new covenant, the new Israel. Collectively, we're known as the church, and we are God's treasured possession. Think about that. Just grasp that for a second. That God treasures you as his possession, as his child. And Paul is saying, because you're a people chosen to be set apart from the rest of the world, chosen to be set apart from the culture you live in, then you must clothe yourself in these attributes that will foster unity amongst this new diverse community in Christ. And as I go through these attributes, this is what I did when I was studying it. I want you to specifically think of your mind of people in this congregation in the past year or people in your life that you disagree with on whatever issue. It could be why the cowboys are terrible or something way more important. (laughs) Big or small. Think about that person and think about these attributes. First, Paul charges us to be compassionate. That is a care for someone based on mercy, or a tender-hearted mercy in the Greek. Is your heart tender to the plight and pain of your brothers and sisters in Christ? Next is kindness. This implies doing gracious acts for your brothers and sisters in Christ meaning undeserving acts of kindness. Humility. This can simply be defined as valuing others above yourself, regarding the interest of others above your own. Gentleness or meekness. These are your words, your action towards other brothers and sisters, that they're well-tempered, well-measured, Calm, not prone to anger. And finally, Paul calls for the body of Christ to be patient with one another, which I think is huge for for us. We're an impatient people. This attribute refers to how we should approach people. That we are not easily frustrated when we disagree with each other. Even on big issues, we cannot, the first emotion we feel cannot be anger. We have to be a patient people with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, as I examine myself and study this week, I'm ashamed to say that in 2017, these attributes were glaringly absent from my life. In fact, the opposite of these attributes were true in my heart most of the time. I was harsh. I was agitated. I was prideful. I was even indifferent to my brothers and sisters' pain. 
And it brings me great pain. It brings me great shame that me, Ryan Rust, a chosen child of God to serve his body, even entrusted to teach some of his flock that I had a heart full of attributes that would divide his church. And thank God, I was thinking, thank God that his mercies are new every morning. Thank God that his mercies are new every year. Amen? Yeah. In verse 13, Paul gives us two practical examples of how these five attributes that foster unity can be fleshed out. He first says, which I think this is so interesting, he first says that we should bear with each other. This term, to bear with, underline it. In the Greek, it implies a kind of grudging willingness to put up with, to, to put up with the difficulties of living in a community of people that are different than you. Paul is saying when we clothe ourselves in these attributes, one way it will manifest itself practically is that in everyday fellowship, in everyday life of the church, is that we're going to put up with each other's differences. It's not going to divide us. And, then, and again, I want to stress, this is on non-essential issues only. So, for example, we do not put up with a brother and sister living in unrepentant sin. If someone has a racist heart who refuses to repent of that sin, we don't just put up with that, right? We have to discipline that sin. If someone is living a sexually immoral life and is unrepentant, we don't just bear with that difference. That's not what Paul is talking about. Because it is clear in the word of God that unrepentant sin should have no part in the body of Christ. It has to be punished. Now, if you disagree with someone's view on the new tax plan, or building a wall, immigration reform, or whether the end of the world is tomorrow or far off, these disagreements should never splinter the church. Paul is charging us to put up with these differences and maintain worship and fellowship with each other. And the main reason for this is because as Christians, there is a lot of freedom given to us on the non-essentials, on that third tier I was talking about which, again, the non-essentials, I want to be clear, are not blatant sin that is clear in Scripture and viewed as sin by the Orthodox Church for centuries. Nevertheless, the Christian is free to believe what their conscience and the Holy Spirit is teaching them regarding a vast amount of issues, which, again, can be totally different for every believer in Christ, given their background, given their, their history, given their race, given their social class. In Romans 14, Paul is addressing the issue in the Roman church of clean and unclean foods and what Christians should eat. And he says, if one thinks you shouldn't eat it, they shouldn't eat it. And if one thinks they should, then they can. See, there is a freedom there in Christ to disagree do you see the freedom and beauty in that? That we don't all have to like the same things. We don't all have to like the same food. 
We don't all have to listen to the same music. We don't have to watch the same movies. We don't have to have the same political views. Each individual Christian's conscience will guide them to fullness in Christ. We must trust that the Holy Spirit is working to bring our brothers and sisters in Christ to glory just as he is working in us to bring us to the end. So this also means we can't judge those who come to the different who come to different conclusions than us on these non-essential issues. And this is where it's really hard for me to be honest. I do not have a right to judge those that disagree with me on these issues. The second way Paul says we can practically be unified as one body is by forgiving one another if any has a grievance against someone or a problem against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. So the reality of life in the church and about being open in fellowship with sinners like me is that you will get hurt. I may have hurt you this past year. I've said stupid things on social media. And I'm deeply sorry. And it's going to happen. Hurt will happen. Even the most well-intentioned people on this earth will offend and hurt somebody. Someone will say something that offends you. Someone will have a belief that you find heinous. Someone might even blatantly try to hurt and shame you. And Paul's call for unity is that the church must be marked by forgiveness. When we hurt and we have a problem with another member, with a brother or sister, we have to forgive them. This isn't optional. It is a command. There is no unity in the church of Jesus Christ when sinners are not willing to forgive other sinners. Paul says, forgive as the Lord forgave you. How did our Lord forgive us? He willingly went to a Roman cross to experience the gruesome death that every single one of us in this room deserved. And he took all of our sin and he washed it away in the crimson blood flowing from his side. Our Christ willingly, willingly forgave even those who nailed him to the cross, who mocked him, who spit on him. And this is us in the story, mockers of God. We spit on his truth, and yet he forgives our every last sin when we trust him with all our heart as our Lord and Savior. So when you're hurt, legitimately hurt by a brother or sister in Christ, remember Jesus and how much he has forgiven you. Remember the vileness in your own heart and what the extent Christ had to go to for you to be redeemed. And I think you will find the strength to forgive every hurt you face on earth, especially when they are not deserving of forgiveness. Paul says all these attributes must be wrapped up in love. It gives an imagery of putting on a coat on all these other attributes. Love has to be the one that covers them all. And I think love is an odd thing in our culture. I don't think, I mean, in fact, I know 
our culture doesn't understand biblical love. When we see the word love in Scripture, the thing that should come to our mind is not hearts and Cupid, but the cross and sacrifice. There is no greater love than this, to lay down one's life for your brothers or sisters. It's the word from Jesus. So look around to the people in these pews. This is your family. These are your brothers. These are your sisters. These are your fellow children chosen by God to be his church. Are you willing to sacrifice for them? Are you willing to give up your time for them? Are you willing to give up your comfort for them? Are you willing to lay down your life for them? Because when we are, when we have that type of love for each other, your neighborhoods are going to change. Your community is going to change. Elgin, Texas is going to change. And the devil will shudder. Because the promise of Scripture is that the gates of hell will not stand against a people unified in that type of self-sacrificial love. We will stand out from this self-obsessed culture, which is exactly what God designed us for, to be set apart. We are God's set-apart children, and we can sacrificially give ourselves the way Christ gave us. Because remember, he lives in us through his spirit. So let it be so at First Baptist Elgin in this new year. Last point. Striving for peace among each other must be what rules and governs this church. Paul says in verse 15, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Another word to underline here, rule. Very important. It means the decisive factor. It's kind of like, I was, I was reading one commentator, it's like an umpire or an official the person who decides what is right. So Paul is saying when you face conflict and differences in the church, which you're going to, what should be the deciding factor in all these situations is the peace of Christ. And peace of Christ here is not referring to the peace we all find in knowing Christ, but the peace found only in the community of Christ. That means what rules the church has to be mutual peace amongst each other. Not anyone's personal interest, not any group or clique's personal agenda. No peace between each other must rule this congregation. And this means for us practically, when a conflict arises among us, it must be squashed immediately. This is so important because let me tell you who loves a divided church who loves to let conflict among the brothers and sisters of Christ go unchecked, who loves for there to be discord. There is someone who hates the peace of Christ, and that is the devil. He loves to splinter God's children. He loves to divide us. So when the divisive election cycle has come and gone, when race issues surface up in our culture, when nationalistic ideology rises in the culture, all things that can divide the church 
and the devil will use them. And it is my prayer that in 2018, we do not let him. And remember, we have the power of the devil in that hymn we just sang, in the name of Jesus. There is something about that name. That it's my prayer that instead of splintering into different camps on the left and the right, that our culture seems to be pushing us towards, that we, the church, would stand united proclaiming one thing, and that is Jesus Christ came to save sinners and to reconcile this broken world back to himself. Now, this doesn't mean that we just leave all of our political views at home. It doesn't mean we leave all of our worldviews, everything we believe at home. No. We are vocal. We must be vocal as a Christian about what we think is best for our neighborhoods, what we think is best for our communities, what we think is best for our country. But this does mean that when differences occur, peace, not discord, peace must reign in the church. We have to learn to peacefully disagree on important issues without running away from each other, without causing division. The Bible says we are sheep. God's chosen sheep. And in God's providence, in God's sovereignty, he has placed us sheep in Elgin, Texas, in this congregation or this field, and we have an enemy, a lion who came to devour these sheep, who came to kill and to destroy The word of God says to literally tear us apart. Now what this lion likes to do is divide divide this pack of sheep. It starts by small divisions in the flock, then bigger divisions until the sheep are isolated from the whole of the flock and the lion comes and devours these isolated packs of sheep. One by one, he picks them off until there is no flock left. This is how churches die and why churches are dying in our country. But if the sheep are guided solely by the one good shepherd, completely unified, completely in one flock, yes, the lion will still attack, but the damage will be far less severe. He might get some sheep on the outside, but the whole will stay intact And the will of God will go on. See, the devil hates a unified body of Christ because he knows a people chosen by God, set apart for his kingdom, and his kingdom's purposes is so much stronger than a divided flock of sheep. Wandering alone, waiting to be slaughtered. So, I urge you, I urge myself, fight for unity. Brothers and sisters, this is important. This is not a game. And I'm talking to myself before anyone else. Churches are dying left and right in this culture. This is quite literally a war with eternal significance. People's salvation is on the line of how we interact with one another. And my prayer for the past two months since I've known I was going to preach today, is that 
we would all wake up, that we would see the importance of unity in the body, that we would set aside our differences, that we would put up with each other's differences, that we would be ourselves and love each other for that, that we would think less of ourselves and more of our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we would be welcoming to every single type of person, poor, white, black, Hispanic, rich, uneducated, farmer, mechanic, lawyer, businessman, teacher. And I wish I could say that in 2017 our world, our culture would make our lives easier and we, we would be less divided, but I don't think it will. The culture wars will get worse, but the church must be different. We must be set apart. First Baptist Elgin will be different. We will become the unified, chosen body of Christ. Think about this. We can look so different. We can be so set apart from our dark culture that lost people, the refugees of the culture wars, who are looking, just searching for some sort of hope that we know this culture can't give them, that we know the government can't give them. And they could walk in these doors, and they could see a family so knit together that they would see a group of sinners that care for each other so much that they would have no other desire than to find a way to join that family. Eternal Father, I pray this would be so in our church in 2018. Amen? Let's pray. God, Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for the Apostle Paul, that he wrote this letter to a church 2,000 years ago and how it applies to us now. Father, I pray that the, the truth that we heard today would change our lives, it would change our communities, it would change this town. I pray that by whatever means you have to do, you would unite this body. And I pray by whatever means you have to do, you would get the division out of these walls. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.